HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guests are Ariel Arce and Alessandro Pepe. We'll talk to Ariel and Alessandro about food, wine, and of course, Roscioli and more. We will taste something Alessandro plucked out of the wine room for our weekly wine sip. That's pretty representative of what's going on here wine-wise. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Ariel Arce is no stranger to the Grape Nation. She's joined us to talk about Air Champagne Parlor, Tokyo Record Bar, the opening of her concept restaurant, Niche Niche, her champagne book, Better With Bubbles, and now the new outpost of beloved Roman restaurant, Roscioli. Alessandro Pepe comes to Roscioli, New York via Rome with a varied background, including comedy, acting, waiting tables, psalm, and is the founder of wine bar Remessa Roscioli in Rome and in New York City. Roscioli is now open at 43 McDougal Street in New York City. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Ariel. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Alessandro. Thanks, Sam. Um, Congratulations to both of you on the opening of Oshioli. I know you're serving dinners, and I know you're in the process of finishing things up. Um, to people that know Roscioli, it's kind of a cultish, top-of-the-list type thing, but there's enough people that don't know about it. So I want you guys, without talking over each other, um, to give a little background on you guys, which I'll get to secondarily, and Roscioli. So I guess, Alessandro, you could start with this. Mm -hmm. 
just give people a little history of Roscioli. I mean, it, it's it's a restaurant in Rome. It's a family business. Don't take a lot of time, but you know, how did it get there? Or what's it been doing? You know, they added things. Tell me a little about it. Yeah, I mean, you know, explaining things in in few words in, in Italian and with the American culture is not e- in Italian culture is not easy. No, yeah. <laughs> Especially then you start swinging your arms too, right? <laughs> Especially because Rosciolli is something that changed during the years. But let's say that um, Marco Rosciolli, when he was a uh, 16 years old, he moved from this little village uh, in Marche and he followed some relatives in Rome. He was having no money. He started to work in a bakery called uh, Antico Forno and he was sleeping on a sack of flowers. He oh, didn't wow. have a place to sleep and uh, he really, really you know, started from the very beginning. So if we are all here, it's mainly because of Marco. And then he was able to actually buy them the bakery in 1967. And then, then uh, his sons, Pierluigi and Alessandro, decided uh, to uh, buy a kind of a rough deli that was not so far from... Uh, from pre-existing? Pre-existing, it a, yeah. It was a so it started as a bakery? It started as a bakery. Okay. You know, everyone remember it. If you talk with uh, all the people from Rome, oh, I used to, when I was a child, I used to take the, the pizza bianca from the bakery. So Alessandro and Pierluigi decided to transform a deli in, uh, in a kind of a deli restaurant. It was kind of a unique place. You have to consider there were not a lot of quality things uh, in, in Rome at that time. A lot of tourism, especially in the 70s and 80s, the old trattoria were almost going to close. And so they opened this place that is a salumeria con cucina, which means uh, deli, it's delicatessen. Salumeria, it's even more a rough, uh, more um, traditional way, pizzicheria. Usually used to be the farmers that had some, no, you know, the, instead of actually going to the local market every Saturday or Sunday, Campo de Fiori, they said, oh, why don't we open our own place there? And so started to create a link between the countryside and the city. And then they opened, usually they open a place, and uh, and he started to open some tables also, and so a little kitchen. And he always do the quality of Alessandro, you know, understatement. You know, we're not a restaurant. Then the place became famous, and uh, and then comes my part, like something like 15 years ago, more or less. I was working there as a seller guy, and I decided to open. So you were just a worker? Yeah, I was just a worker there. <laughs> and nothing specific? I mean, you were doing was everything? Yeah, no, what, was, it, was it wine specific, or just were you working? Well, technically, I have a background. I opened three wine bars in Dublin before I was importing wines in Makes Dublin. Sense, you know, right? But you know, <laughs> so but I was not starting from from zero. Even though in that specific right. case, I restarted actually from zero because you know my wife got pregnant. So from Dublin, I went back to you to Italy, and I met at, um, Maurizio, which is a kind of a wine guru and a champagne expert too. And so I followed him more. I didn't even know Rosciolli. And that time was not so famous. And Rosciolli became famous mainly in the last 15 years. And um, it was just open, only three years, two years, the, the daily. And so I worked there as a seller guy. And then um, I was speaking, I was one of the few that was speaking kind of a comprehensible English. And we had a lot of foreigners there. So I started to, and also you have to consider that in Rome, tourists are always be treated in a strange way, you know, like, right. you know, if you want to cheat on someone, you know, <laughs> so, right. and so I was taking care of them because I was doing tasting in Dublin. And so I started to do this little wine tasting, like in, in the back part of the restaurant and we needed a bigger warehouse. And so at the cellar, so I found a place where we could move some of our wines and I created the tasting room that was Almost to the site. Uh, my first client was Anthony Bourdain, and so on. For for that 
they you know this Rimessa became kind of a mythological place where we were doing the strange off the bit type of tasting. And, and then and the business enlarged and now Remissa is actually bigger than, than San Maria. Right. And then, then we met Ariel, but that's the second part. Okay. We'll get to that. <laughs> um, just tell me, how do you get to Dublin? Why do you wind up oh, in Dublin? I, what? It was a chip flight. I was in London. And I, I, there was something you mentioned about my biography that I, I, I don't think even my son knows about it. You were talking about acting and comedy. I was the worst actor and stand-up comedian in the world. But uh, well, to- ob- <laughs> obviously, you're opening a restaurant. You're not on strike in Hollywood. So, That's right. Yeah. And uh, But beside that, I used to be a documentarist and so on. And so I was a bit stuck in my you know, my relation ah. with the film industry. So and previous career yeah, stuff. I have at least to see a seven, eight a different previous career from the 20. <laughs> from, and so I end up in Dublin because it was a cheap flight. My actually goal was to get on a, on a boat, uh, on a cargo boat and cross the ocean. But I, then I realized that I, I, I lost my passport, so I couldn't actually get into the boat. And so I was there with no money. So I started to work in a restaurant there and I met a guy who is called Mick Wallace. Then and now he's an important politician, and he gave me the key of a wine bar, and then I started my my experience a, there, really and then uh, then my ex-wife got pregnant, so I decided to there come back go. to Italy. Um, Ariel, so now we have sort of a foundation of who Alessandro is and what was going on on the other side of the pond. I people know who you are from the podcast and from being uh, in New York and in the business. I want to discuss with you. What led to the final days of Niche Niche? Mm. You know, you had an incredible run. Um, I remember the week you opened, I sat with you, and it was just the most amazing concept. And I think at the end, I asked you, you know, can you sustain this? And you did. But I guess, you know, if it didn't feel right or when it didn't, um, what led to that? Did it run its course? Were you networking and you had opportunities to, to, you know, tell me how that happened? Yeah, I I mean, I think for my career up until this point, it's always been about flexibility and being able to pivot and evolve and grow. And, you know, I never set out in this business to be an operator. Um, So I'm still very much learning. I'm learning with my partners now. I was learning by myself. I've been taught by my team. And um, I think, you know, I hate to say it because it sounds like a broken record, but COVID really was such a issue for Niche Niche as a concept because Niche Niche was all about gathering in a space and the experience changing every single night. So, you know, if you don't know what Niche Niche was, it was every single night of the week, we'd invite in a different beverage professional from around the world. Um, and they would choose four wines and the wine list would change every single night as per the tasting. And then we have an amazing chef, um, who's now a part of the Rochelle New York city project, but Aaron Lorette would change the menu every single night to pair with those four wines. So, um, I'm sure you can understand that during COVID when you couldn't have people come from different places, people couldn't be meeting in a specific space. You certainly couldn't take the risk of buying things that people wouldn't be be purchasing. Um, it just changed our concept completely. And also everyone was really excited about food. I mean, for the most part, people were buying up every single wine they get their hands on retail wise and restaurants were doing their very best, you know, to sell some wine, but 
it was really about delivery, takeout, having kind of experiences at home. And so we started doing collaborations with chefs. So over the first kind of year of COVID, we collaborated almost every single week with a different chef partner or restaurant from around the world because people weren't able to travel anywhere. So we were saying, let's bring a little piece of somewhere abroad here. And naturally, you know, we were able to continue with our previous customers, but we also started having new customers that were only knowing us for food. food. And Niche Niche, first and foremost, was always about the wine first. It was the first time that I kind of addressed how do you flip the paradigm of if you're going to do a tasting, but you're tasting wine first and you're pairing it with food and not vice versa. So I think for us, it Niche Niche got to a place where so many people were coming for what is the menu? What is the food going to be for that night? Are we now all of a sudden printing menus? Are we keeping dishes dishes on for longer? Are we having collaborative chefs come for a longer period of time? And we wanted to go back to our original concept. And it became very hard to message that. And yeah. I think it became a little too messy. And I'm not disappointed with what happened because we all had to do what we had to do to survive COVID. And I think a lot of people respected our choice to be, um, you know, as flexible as we were and change what we did. But I think had we known things like PPP were going to happen or, you know, ERC loans oh, or no. grants I mean, were going to happen, really? then I could have made some decisions to stay true to our concept and kind of ride it out. But we didn't know that. So um, when we were in 2021, um, we were continuing this collaborative spirit. And we met, I had met Alessandro in Rome that summer. And, you know, we had talked All right, about. So let's shift to that. So you oh, met yeah. Alessandro. What year is this? 2021. 20, oh, you said 20. Yeah. My bad. Um, and I said to you off air when I walked in, boy. You've done a lot of traveling these past <laughs> few years. So obvious. And Italy, I know, out. was a favorite. <laughs> um, so did you know, you knew about Rosciulli? Of course. I mean. Did you know anyone there? No. Okay. But so now you brought up Alicent. So talk talk to me about that. No, just because of niche niche. I mean, this is what was so amazing was that people would connect me to people all the time. Right. This would and be a good guy for a night type thing. It was not even that. It yeah. was, hey, we know each other. I was just in Rome. I met these really cool people. Are you going to Rome anytime soon? Oh, yeah. I happen to be going there for 24 hours. Why don't I connect you to so-and-so, which happens to be Alessandro's partner, Lindsay Gabbard, who is from Michigan and was living and still is living in Rome. Um, and he was like, why don't I connect you guys? She works at this cool place, Rosciulli. I was like, oh, yeah, I tried to get a reservation there, virtually impossible. And, you know, that night I had a reservation to go to this amazing restaurant, but I was only in town for literally like 12 hours. It was my birthday. And then I ended up spending the whole night on the street with Alessandro and Lindsay and their team at Remessa. And it was wonderful. So do you remember that? I remember. And was that? It's our meet cute. It's our origin story. But that, that, I was... <laughs> I was just to say that was the impetus 
for the um, beginnings of this, did the conversations about, hey, you should come to New York or, you know, how how specific did you get? How deep were you in? Um, I was actually invited to come back to Rome again the next month by Alessandro before we ever talked about New York City. Oh, but nice. it was on that next trip that we um, talked about how they wanted to come and they were going to do some pop-ups with some other friends that they had here. And selfishly, I was like, can we do something together? And, um, you know, we kind of threw a whole bunch of ideas together. Alessandro is one of the most creative people I have ever had the pleasure of meeting. And he threw about 400 ideas at me. And I was like, I thought we were going to do a night. Well, now we're going to have to do five. Didn't, so, you, didn't you do a week? <laughs> we a did Rocioli a week, week of programming, yes. So based on what you talked about before, you know, where initially started as kind of wine and the food was a backdrop and then COVID brought food forward. What did you do those five days? I mean, what? it's like, hey, it's great to be in New York. You know, I'm with this person I met and I kind of love. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what, what did you do? Uh, the first thing that was actually quite interesting is that um, sometimes when you do something original, you feel a bit alone in the world. It's a nice feeling, but also sometimes you feel a bit detached. Um, New York is an incredible creative place. Rome, don't think it has such a place that is moving a lot. You know, really, like not a lot of things happen in Rome. Really, it's, it's a monumental, eternal city because nothing changes. So, uh, if you think, wait, of- hold on, do you agree with that? I understand. You understand? I understand it. I'm, I'm a voyeur when I'm in Rome, so everything feels yeah. new to me. Yeah. But I can tell you, as being kind of let into these people's lives, I can see. They do a lot of the same things. They do, you know, going to the same cheers bar every single night or everybody meets up in this place on this day or, you know, this is this restaurant that I've been returning to for years or this is where I get my coffee every morning. Is There's that correct, lot- Alessandro? No, it is. But it's <laughs> comparing to the fact that in 2022, we were almost signing for the contract. You know, we were here on our team. And we spent like eight hours with her. Like <laughs> we visited, I think, like twenty wine bars and restaurants in eight <laughs> hours. And usually in Rome, yes, we go to one place. But it's, it's something that I like. The fact, yeah. you know, the yeah. idea we usually yeah. go to that place. It's not something. I'm not. I love Rome. To me, you're, you're is, op- is more open than yeah. The but on the guy. same time, I, I was born in Milan. I'm, I think I have a kind of more. Uh, a fluid approach to, 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 to places in general. I mean, I moved here, I'm 51, and I like the idea. A lot of people would have been scared of my age. You've never lived in New York before? Uh, no, when I was nine years old. I lived you in visit? Uh, no, I was living, you, I lived in a year with my mother. She was teaching at university. But in the last 10 years? No, no, I used to come here so every, you were, every year for like a week or two for the last seven years, maybe beside COVID, to do pop-up events. Oh, okay. But, um, you know, not as complex as the one we did with okay. her. No, she was saying, Alessandro is like a super creative person. And this is like, <laughs> Ariel is a super creative person. I remember that she was trying to explain what was happening at Niche Niche. And it's like, this, this person is copying me. Like, we do the same thing. But I do this, and I do this, and I do this. So there was this incredible connection of, of the fact that, and she didn't know our place, and we didn't know her place. And But so we were doing nice. really similar things. And and trust me, can I show off a bit? I don't think places like Nish Nish and like Rimesa, there are not, not there are a lot in the world. And I visit a lot of places. Oh, the I idea, totally agree. The idea to use wine not as a tool but as a weaver. Wine is not the, the main subject. The wine is a tool. It is a tool, actually, in a way. 
to help people to stay together, to create situation. You, we don't dissect the wines like they were dead bodies, you know, spending hours Well, those premises it. differentiate you and how you think about, you know, wine in a restaurant or a bar. It's not, it's not like you said. Just something to be dissected yeah, in a liquid it, in a glass. Th there are some wine bars, wine bars and restaurants that are able to work on this situation. There are a few of them. I would say I can mention like two, three in Paris, maybe in New York, you know more. What can in, you in, mention in Rome? In oh, I think we were the can, I think we were the first one. Like tell seven, eight if, years ago, we were the first one. Um, tell me in Paris that sticks out to you. But I'm thinking about Vervolet, for example. I am yeah, I thinking about Mark, uh, Marco Peltier, yeah. Clown Bar, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Chateaubriand. In a way, yeah. the concept, but oh, uh, even um, yeah, you know. But also, those ones are places that are like seven, eight years old. Yeah. And it's, I mean, ten years ago, I would guess that Imesa was like one of the few places that was doing things the, like that. The yeah. thing that I always got feedback on for niche niche, and I can see it the same thing at Remesa, is that restaurants all around the world do what we do for like one night a month, right? They spend mm. all this time putting together a really special event. And it was mind blowing to a lot of people that we would do those events every single night. And I think in general, you see incredible pop-ups, you see amazing underground dinner parties, you see people doing really cool stuff. But when it comes to being like a mainstream model, the model that we share is something that I actually think is like, a no-brainer model because it allows you to know before people walk in the door how many people are going to be there, how many bottles of wine for the most part you're going to open, what your food costs are going to be. Um, it makes things quite simple. It's the mechanics that I think scare people. That's what I was going to say. People are lazy. <laughs> They're not ready to execute. <laughs> are not yeah. normal people. Right. You're um, hustlers. But we're and also, creatives. We're creative. But we've also found a lot of people that are similar to us that are open to doing service. By the way, that's my father who built these who restaurants. Built this place. So he's allowed to interrupt yeah, everything. He's allowed to do whatever he wants. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's there's so many other people that are interested in doing that. They don't necessarily have the spirit to go out there and take on that risk. But I'll tell you, and Alessandro will say the same thing, the people that we get to work with are, if not more talented, more creative than we right. are. Um, and it becomes a machine. It becomes no different than any other type of style of model that you have kind of worked on and honed into. And, um, and it becomes yours. It's virtually terrifying for me to consider doing a la carte service but doing something like what we do <laughs> yeah. is like this is this I is a breeze i have an interesting actually my 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 the origin of my tasting dinner is the same one that she was doing it's coming from i feel like a django rainer you know he was playing with only three <laughs> three fingers because <laughs> I was the worst waiter in the world, really. And you, I, You're I, still I, really great. Say, <laughs> <laughs> if I go to a, in a table and they used to order me more than two people, I couldn't remember what they oh were boy. ordering. So I actually created the tasting menu so that <laughs> I right. decided for them. So it was some kind of minus. But the concept, yeah, a la carte menu scares me too. I think, I don't know if it's the same thing for you, Ariel. I think that maybe 
the reason why Nish Nish and Remes are so particular and singular is that we technically do not come from that background. Right. We come from, a, I think you've been to La Guardia School and all, you know, you've been acting too. So the idea that we were on a field that it was more about on the edge of arts and stuff. And so the fact that I personally, the reason why I do all these things is because technically I don't like my job. I don't like to do always the same job every day. I get bored. I like the idea to have a theatrical approach to things, you know, that every day there is a new happening, that every day is something new. I know it's stressing, incredibly stressing, creating every night. Every but there are times that remesa we have three winemakers passing to the table, a guy is doing an olive oil taste, and then we have a, a taste of the legend. Then at the same time, like there is an, a same thing. I was maybe in our tasting, um, and they were not changing every night, but there were a lot of things. On, and here you had every night a different thing, and and uh, and also you had music here. I don't know how much we can talk about because we're not allowed to do live music. But maybe we did a little okay. unplugged stuff here. And yeah, when uh, you talk to Alessandro and I about restaurants, like you're gonna get 20 minutes of kind of interesting content. But when you talk to us about like why we're in this business and our philosophy and how theater and emotion and energy play into what we like to create. It's a much more interesting story and I think it has a lot more to do with what we're trying to bring into the world rather than just like the mechanics of how a restaurant operates. Well, that's no preconceived notion. Yeah, It's like, forget this is what happens every day or how you do it. This is what we want to do and how we want to do it. Mm. And both of you sort of pledge you're willing to put the work in and it requires even though I have my thought and work I have my Madeleine I mean it's unfair to say that I was actually brought into this business by chance because I remember that when I was 18 years old the first time I had my driving license I actually went with all my friends to a harvest party in Tuscany and I remember spending one time in a disco pub in my life I was always on wine fairs I was in winery Set 18 years old was something kind of unique, you know, moving to sure. like a little village in Tuscany. So that sense of community, that sense. And I remember spending, I remember that I, I was 18. I started my first business selling old school, uh, school books. You no, know, I was buying from the student. And remember, we made a lot of money. <laughs> we spent it in three days. We spent a lot in, in, in wine bottles. Like, That's 18, funny. like $200 for a wine bottle for an 18-year-old guy. Is like in a, so the, it was part of my passion. So even though I was into theater, I was into you know writing yeah. and other stuff. I, I don't think it's, like I said, it's not a coincidence no. that the two of you were drawn together and you know, you're very creative and concept people. And I want to talk about that more, but I also want to frame in people's minds, um, the physical aspect of this, Mm -hmm. like I'm going to put you in the position for a few minutes. I'm walking down Houston. I cut down McDougal. I'm at the front entrance. There's a lot going on here and a lot that will be going on when you're finished. It's a multi-level place. It's multi, what's the word? Service, offerings, all of that stuff. So talk to me about, you know, when you walk in, because there's not a lot of places like Rocioli and, you know, you're going to kind of replicate that. So physically, tell me what, you know, the final look is going to be. Well, I think that it's always going to be ever-changing because, again, Alessandro has a million ideas. And I think this is more than anything, a, a place and space that we want to create community 
and we really want to um, find every possible way that we can to not compromise on quality, whether that's from experience or products or wine thought or, you know, just humans, <laughs> like the quality of humans together sure. is a rare thing. So um, when you come to Roscioli, when it will be fully open, um, the upstairs will be an alimentari slash wine bar a la carte restaurant. And I know that sounds silly for me to like break it down into those things. But for us, it's like, it is a lot of different stuff going on in one place. It's not just a restaurant. It's not just a shop. It's not, you know, so um, you'll be able to come in there and order off a menu of delicatessen items, as well as composed dishes from pastas to Roman classics to really cool seasonal um, dishes that our chefs will be going to the market every day and working with local farmers. Um, we also have a shop up there that will have about 150 different products that are either made for the Roscioli family, made in tandem, or are our own private label productions of sauces and oils and, you know, all these amazing um, ingredients that come from Italy. Um, a huge part of the ethos in Italy, and Alessandro can speak to it more, is that, you know, working with the highest quality ingredients from all over Italy, as well as all over the world. And so in New York City, in the tri-state area, there's people producing incredible dairies and, you know, produce and seafood and so we're working with um people as well to aren't, continue with that ethos here aren't you in a good way forced <clears throat> to do that because you can't import certain things like sure. unpasteurized dairy or sure I like think certain ingredients that are the wheelhouse of the Salamaria, however you pronounce it, uh, you can't ship here. So maybe you go upstate and get a Barada guy, or is that, you mm -hmm. know, where? The greatest achievement, and I think uh, that's the best, uh, that, that's what scares me more. We have been thinking about this opening for seven years. The Rosali family refused a really, really important proposal from big brands and stuff, mainly because of how do we organize? Maybe because they didn't want to move from Rome, <laughs> right. not, but also, which is a nice but thing about the Rosalie family, want to is, you know what? Compromise anyway. Right. It was not even that. It was just about you know. But, so I was possibly a bit more international. Even though Pier Luigi came here, he did a lot of events too, and Alessandro. Uh, but there was this thing, and at a certain point, I made this decision because I realized that, that if we were creating a hub and a connection between Rome and New York, there was, and I'm not really sure. I'm hoping. There was a possibility to create a developing a system that develops, then instead of lower the quality, increase it. How does it work? You don't create a pyramid, pyramid system. You create an horizontal system. You create a net of artisans that help each other and help you, and you support them to make decisions. When it comes to wine, even more than when it comes to food. Give you an example. If you are a winemaker, and there are a lot of what I call new rurals nowadays, technically, it's, it's a good thing. You know, there are, some people are going back to their roots. So they are going back to tradition. You, know, you have to consider that Italy completely has been desertified in terms of uh, higher hills and colline. They all went to the factories in the 60s and 70s. They completely abandoned. It's an overpopulated country, Italy, but you can find places that are completely desertified. 
if you go to Calabria, you see all this village, beautiful middle-aged village, where it's all like two people that are more than 100 years old. If there is someone that is still there that is less than 90 years old, is because he's making wine or olive oil. Uh, it's the only thing that keeps you there. And sometimes I also discuss with my friends, you know, today we all talk about national pride. We have a fascist prime minister at the moment. And I don't want to talk about politics, but, you know, they all talk about what does it mean to be Italian. And sometimes they say, what do you We think? know what you mean. Yeah, no, no, but, you know, it's, what do you mean to be Italian? You know, you eat Philadelphia cheese, you go to McDonald's, you watch American <laughs> Netflix series, you live in a house that is like a copy of the suburbs of Detroit. And you barely know where is the Colosseum sometimes because you don't go to the central room. You're right. And so so we are completely detached, you know. We don't read a lot. Our cultural level is going down. And the only thing that makes you feel again is the food and the wine sometimes. And especially That's in the, the countryside. And so helping these people here and say, I'm not, I'm not actually branding, putting my brand on you. I just support you. I'll buy you the wine more and a higher price as long as you keep that. And it's about, for example, okay, instead of making uh, um, one kilo per plant, I'll do three kilo per plant. No. Keep it there. Instead of using a freestanding bush, I'll do a guillot because it's actually more convenient. Or instead of, I'll put some more sulfites and I'll put some selectives. No, don't do that. I'll help you. I'll support you. And this is what is happening with most of the winemakers. With tomatoes, is the same story. Um, you know, there are a lot of breeds of tomatoes that are, you know, almost risking distinction. It's about... I wouldn't say that it's just about quality because this is a subjective concept. It's about defending cultural biodiversity. Right. Which, Which is, is more important. Much we, more important. Yeah, you know, we were actually focusing a lot on the best wine in the world in the 90s. Oh, this big cab is beautiful, 90 points, 100 points. But it's, is everyone t talking about how the wine should be different one from the other? They're more than which is the best, which is... I don't want to live in a world that is only Cab and Merlot. I love them, Cab and Merlot. <laughs> we have more than 1,800 different grape varieties, and it's actually but the widest in Italy. That's diversity, I agree. But people and culture is important as quality, you know, and diversity. Well, like you, you have said. to define what quality means. And I think we've gone so far into the luxury marketing of the word quality, yeah. which means expensive and rare. And really, quality for me means that. You're working with artisans Which who are is, not compromising right. what they're producing. And I think, you know, what Alessandro is doing with the wine program is so phenomenal because not only is he supporting, but he's also getting invested in the physical land and the physical space and putting down roots in those places to be able to, you know, bring those stories and storytell with a whole new audience that would never, ever have access to these things either. And they're not necessarily better than other things. They're just their own. And when things are small, they get lost. And I think having a platform like Roscioli allows small things to feel very big and very rare and very special. And they're not compromising the quality of how those things are being produced. And then all of a sudden you create demand for something that nobody had demand for. And Alessandro does this so well without even realizing that he's doing it. He's just so dedicated to his pursuit of, I think, maintaining the old culture of Italy and these incredible artisans and producers that, like he said, will become extinct at a certain point. Right. Um, and that's, you know, an amazing thing to bear witness to in the dining room, you know, the last week in three 
different seedings we opened a cheese that is made in clay that Alessandro can tell you about that nobody is making, one producer is making, and he makes, you know, you can say, I don't know, 40, 100, it's very small no, production asking, of these things. This is here or in Italy? <laughs> no, he's here. We, you uh, Alessandro found, Polizia. You found a purveyor uh, that... I did, and actually, Alessandro did, my colleague, our colleague. Right. And um, it's, she's actually, Alessandro Rosciali found it, and, and Alessandro Polizia, which is our colleague, is... Are you, he did all the thing to of the FDA, which is not easy. Are you confident and excited that there are a lot of opportunities like that in food? Uh, what I actually was so happy. And first of all, if you were asking me to open all this thing 15 years ago, I don't know. I think we were not ready. I was truly not ready. But in general, we didn't have the audience ready to accept it. And there were not enough artisans. Uh, the, one of the few good things of all the problems we have to, with the environment, that there is a small group of people that is going back to the land to try to see, is there a way where I can create my little ecosystem that is sustainable? Sustainable from a lot of different reasons, not just from economic reason, from an environmental reason. So it means that if I don't buy... Uh, 50, uh, 100 acres of, 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 of vineyard planted right. in a valley, put a lot of chemicals, destroy all the forest around. It is about, no, we're actually, I'm going to tell about this story later if you want, we're going to drink the wine. But if we're talking about like a place that likes the two, three, four acres of vineyards, okay, like, no, maybe more, seven, eight acres of vineyard, a little winery there, seven, 10,000 bottles, strongly supported by us, uh, price that is higher than usual. We're talking about bottles that never exceed $60. You, all of us are between 25. Of course, they are not, you know, supermarket wines. But I'm talking about American prices. In Italy, sources, of course, is, a, is, a, is a cheaper. So we're not talking about bottles that cost about $200, $300 per person. So. And uh, so the idea that creating a bit of a biodiversity there, actually all these winemakers here, there is maybe two acres of vineyard, and there is five, six acres of um, uh, cork, uh, cork bark uh, trees. How do you call it? The, uh, cork. Cork, cork, cork trees. trees. Maybe you have like um, strawberries, and you have salads, and you have pears, and lemons, right. and olive trees, fruits, and, vegetables. That's what used to be once upon a time. The country you you didn't have a supermarket, so your supermarket was your land. And I guess that in a way, I'm not one of these people that say we have to go back to Neolithics, but I'm saying maybe we should start to look backwards with a modern approach. And tra tradition, I, I, my mother is an anthropologist, so I know what, how tricky could be the, the word the tradition. There's a beautiful <laughs> definition of Samuel Corda. He's a, a builder and a farmer. He makes the wine for us in Sardinia. And uh, he literally is actually killing himself because he does two jobs. Okay. And he said, taking care of tradition is taking care about the fire, not taking care about the ashes. Right. It's just a beautiful definition. Is about It has to be something that... It's not that, that it's still there. You know, you keep it there. And it changed. It's not something fixed. So that's it. Now, the idea that now we can possibly... I've seen, for example, cheese. I remember seven, eight years ago, American cheese were not as good as now. I see things are changing. No. New York State. No, they're changing. They're this, California. They're starting to work with raw cheese and I mean, so I will jump into this conversation. Okay. Because my first job <laughs> that I ever had was working for artisanal cheese. And that was, you know, 15 plus years ago. Start, and just starting to happen. 
and it was just starting to happen. I remember like right around that time, this is like 2009, um, Harbison had just won as like the most kind of acclaimed American right. cheese. And now we look at a cheese like Harbison if you're an American cheese lover and you're like, that's kind of like the gold standard of kind of some unique stinky alternative right. style cheese but it's just the t- it's just the tip of the iceberg and you know companies like Saxelby's and you know all sorts of amazing markets that are happening in the tri-state area we're seeing american cheese is exploding and it's something i'm so proud to see as somebody who loves an import like I mean, naturally, I'm a French and Italian and Spanish cheese eater. Um, Those are the things that totally turn me on. But, you know, the American cheese market is growing exponentially. So I I just I don't mean to say that I'm, I'm trying to cut off this conversation. I'm just saying that it's been happening. But as always, it's like you start to lay the roots of people getting excited. And then all of a sudden, everything comes together from the production side and the demand side. And you get to see you know, where we're, where we're heading in this country from our produce. It's, it's very exciting. Um, I want to kind of morph into wine, but I want to finish on food for a couple of minutes. Um, Can I just say one thing? Sure. Another thing that I'm actually sure. more and more, I don't really distinguish anymore wine from food in a way. Mm-hmm. And I go back to the Italian tradition okay. where wine I, I, was considered food up to 70, 80 years ago. Yeah. So technically the characteristic I of totally agree with you. It's an agricultural is, product. Yeah, it's, it's that the wine and food are actually yeah. mixing together. And we yeah. did this mistake that we separated the wine from no. some of the dinner, no. which is also unhealthy in my opinion because you need food to digest. Just I, I, I totally <laughs> agree with you. Um, I would love to just add on, I know that you want to this in a direction but no 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 remember what i said wherever we go we go (laughs) i think um you see in trends which is something that i think both alessandra and i really like to study not because we have any background in that just to understand what's happening um i think we've tried to really dumb down wine like we've tried to take wines that are so historical and so storied and we've tried to label them as natural, organic, sustainable. We've given them buzzwords. We tell you that wines are great for holidays or great for dinner parties or for this specific food experience. Like this wine's amazing. But what I love about- Rosé was a summer wine. Yeah. Like we've we've taken an entire category and we've turned it into experiential marketing. And while I love taking on those types of challenges, what I think these guys do better than anybody else is give you so much information and honor the history and the producer so deeply. And I think there's a moment now where maybe 10 years ago, I would have been like, oh, brother, like another (laughs) small producer, like, okay. And now I'm like, I only want to know about the guy that's making 10 bottles in his backyard. The story is prominent now. And not necessarily even about like, oh, he's making it in his back, you know, in his barn and he's mm. doing what's like, I want to know the quality producers that I would never know and understand them so holistically and deeply so that I gain a connection to them. And, you know, this is 
of course, a very millennial response to food and, and, <laughs> and drinking and everything. You know, you want to know all the information. But I think it's a really awesome opportunity for these guys to tell people's stories and not just tell them to market them, tell them with extreme detail to the most niche information because they're so deeply connected. To them. I think there was a movement towards that. I think we've seen it, but I don't know how deep the commitment was. I think you have natural wines because natural wines are hot. Millennials want to hear the story, so mm -hmm. you tell the story. But I don't know how, you know, the, you know, the, the real stuff, you know, is happening here. Just to close the food thing. Um, Rocioli started as a bakery. Are you doing any baking here? We Minimal? <laughs> okay. That, I don't want well, to do all that question. We didn't finish the experience of what it means to come here because we started upstairs. Well, we so didn't. We, we're tangential. So you have the, so you have the sit down, yes, deli. And when you talk about baking, we will be baking. We um, have a really expensive So to fit, in, <laughs> to fit into that part. I can tell you that we spent $15,000 right. in In, in a good way, we're <laughs> all over the place. But one of the things I wanted to ask you was. We will not have a forno. We will. This location will not be a forno, so you will What's not a forno? be coming Tell in to have baking. only baked okay. goods and pizzas. But we will do a pizza bianca. We will do probably a focaccia. We right. will do something with some really interesting grains. I mean, we have such great references to be able to do that here. But unfortunately, this space is not large enough and does not have the capacity. And for there us are to the way there are to. branded packagings of Roscioli products, like yes. pastas and all that. And Good job. I know they're all over I, Italy. I need to say they're going to be here. <laughs> I need to say You say whatever things. you want. Whenever, when you start to think in a weaving and a network connection in a mushroom approach to things, I just finished the Sheldrake book, so <laughs> I'm into <laughs> mushrooms right now. And I love the idea that you have to forget about your ego and you have to start, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, me and Eric were both the two alpha people. So, but I think we have both really? of the capacity. She giving me compliment that I will send her back because she's creative as much as more as I do. She has a capacity even more than I have in selecting people. You know, her team, I was in love with her and the place, but especially with the team and Matt and, and Kenneth and Hugo and Cody and, 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 and Aaron are two incredible chefs. Everything uh, she touches yeah. is surrounded no, by the No, it's incredible. People. The way she selects people is incredible. And also yeah, selecting people that are somehow has the same skills. It's about not, it's not about me. It's about hiring into and everyone is doing everything and so on. So I think about how Gaetano Sacoccio helped us in finding all the ingredients, you know, my God, my Gatano is my alter ego in, 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 I don't know if he considers himself my, his alter ego, but, you know, we've been friends for more than 15 years. I'm thinking about uh, also Lindsay has been doing with me with, with Americans and, uh, and, uh, and the job that Alessandro Polizzi is doing to connecting, finding all these uh, producers. And, and, of course, we learn this from Alessandro Rosciali. Alessandro Rosciali opened a place in Via di Giubonari. He could become a billionaire selling a cheap pizza and that's it. He opened a place that was economically nonsense. I mean, I, I know because I was the one at the beginning that was paying the bills. Not, not the bills, not with my money, but I was in charge, you know, to order the wines and stuff. And we were always struggling with money because the way he was putting in, like in a, in a place that is more than this, like 1,200 products, you know, buying a Yuselito when nobody was buying Yuselito. I think we were, <laughs> he was the first one in Rome, you know, selling a prosciutto that was $300 per kilo and, uh, and, and also other things that were cheaper, but on the same really unique. It's not easy, you know. So take us to baking. What do you mean by this conversation? How do we get to work with incredible bakers? 
<laughs> well, the question was, were we going to have bacon? Ah, <laughs> uh, no. Okay. It's a, it's a, a lot of the, the bacon. You don't have to answer that. No, no I'm going to no, just because when you go backwards, the history of Horsey only starts as a bakery. I have an answer for Quickly. everything. I am saying that we will slowly get to it. Yes. But <laughs> don't worry really about it. Carefully. But Ariel, we really respect the Pierluigi job and, 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 and what happened into the bakery we run, make strange stuff. We will do things slowly, but we are working a lot on flowers right now. So we, we will hold you to it. All right. So you okay. brought up a good point that we kind of left something we were talking about. So you walk in and, you know, there's the market, the restaurant and all that. There's a huge wine component. We're sitting in a gorgeous wine room and there's another dining so area. That so that just as it does. And then underneath it, we have our tasting menu, which is kind of the... I don't know, hybrid identity of niche niche meets Rimesa. Um, if you have only ever been to the Salumeria or the Forno, this will look very foreign to you. But we have a lot of guests and customers coming through the door where the only thing that they've experienced is these tasting experiences. Right. So um, it is four wines and four uh, courses, but we call it the four plus more because in every every seating you're getting an extra course of food or a unique different wine or whatnot so um that happens two times a night at six o'clock and eight thirty. that's what's open now and that's currently open right um and we also have this gorgeous wine cellar where we get to do on mondays and tuesdays maybe we'll do it even more um a more elevated tasting where we do about eight to ten wines and eight courses of food um, that's led by Alessandro and our sommelier team and um, that's a little bit more expensive but I mean god last night I was I got the pleasure of sitting down and enjoying it and it is too cheap <laughs> for what we're giving well yeah I mean after we just <laughs> talked about you know how you approach wine I mean it, it's an incredible opportunity um so, the so that's how this place works. And then Alessandro's doing wine classes on um, Sundays and Saturdays. Well, we'll get to that because I want to get to the wine. We have to take a quick break. You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We're talking to Ariel Arce and Alessandro Pepe uh, at the Nouveau Scioli in New York City. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. All right, we're back. We're back with our guests, Ariel and Alessandro. Um, when I cut you off, Ariel, we were talking about wine, and I want to talk a little more about the wine, what's here. You know, it, it's funny 
because I have a question that I was going to ask you, and let me see if I can find it. Um, it, it was sort of like, what are you going to be doing here that no one else is doing? And you answered that already. <laughs> well, you, you, your eye and attention towards what's important about wine beyond filling the glass, you know, w that connection that's important, the culture, the people. Something you know. that is happening here that wasn't happening at Niche Niche, for example, but absolutely has been happening at Remesa, is that um, Alessandro works with, and you can say how many people in total, but something like 60 to 70 wine producers in no, Italy. No, actually much more. more. Here in New, in New York, yes, but in Italy it's 250 more or less. Um, and these these are the producer makers? Producers, some of them. We're really not well talking known, some other less. Some, yeah, know, but we're not talking distributors or no, 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 that, that, that are all wine. Yeah, 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 the winemakers. Yeah. Um, and we're showcasing those wines specifically in our tastings. So this cellar that we're sitting in is yes, filled with legendary wines from legendary producers that you know date back probably to the '80s, maybe even the '70s. But such a huge cornerstone of what we're really showcasing here are these producers that Alessandro works hand in hand with. And those are definitely nowhere else yeah, in I mean, New that's... York slash in America. So slash in Italy. That's, you know, that's exciting. And I think people that kind of get wine, you know, realize the opportunity to come here and, you know, to drink those producers. Um, are you working with uh, the chefs? Who is it, Tommaso and Aaron, your chefs? Who are your chefs here? <laughs> as far as pairing wines and food, or where the Of course. I, silly are. question, right? No, yeah, but there's they, such they, a, come on, Ariel. The, but the wines that he's bringing in and the approach is a little yeah. different, you know, that everything, you know, that's available. Yeah. What, um, are you going to try to do in the States, whether it's New York State, Long Island, California, any other one, are you going to try to um, seek out and befriend wineries in the U.S. that, does that exist? Does that interest you? I have just a little project for the future. Uh, I, I want to save the world. So, okay. Wait, um, the project is to save the world? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> right, I don't mind that. So technically, my ambition is, uh, our ambition is our mission. This, in this case, is really mission. I'm not religious, but I'm kind of a bit of an <laughs> evangelic, actually. Uh, my mission is really to create a format that I want people to copy. I want people to copy us. I want people to follow us. I want people, and so I want to create a trend that is potentially not the solution of the problem we have with the environment, but is about listening a bit more to the environment. With the environment, and I'm not, not just talking about climate change, I'm talking about how, which is a beautiful definition of Dale Jemionson, which we did something really weird. Uh, the second day we opened, I organized a conference with <laughs> two professors after dinner, like it was impossible after seven ways. But I think, uh, I think it came out a nice podcast there, and people were kind of paying attention to, with Paolo Pitcher and Dale Jemionson, is an incredible professor and he's talking about we should stop to talk about nature we should start to talk about the environment because nature is something that is you know we and nature 
uh, Harlem is an environment, Washington DC is an environment, industries are environment. It's not just the forest that we save. We save a bit of a forest and who cares about the rest? We need to create a more cultural and human relationship with all the world around. So more than we do it and more we see and we start to support the local cheesemakers, maybe other cheesemakers start to do it. Maybe if we start to support or promote a, a certain approach to wine production, which is not necessarily the garagist. I know exactly right. remember garagist. My, my place is called Rimesa. It means garage. <laughs> like, I mean, I was, you know, oh, right. the, I have this wine that is in the backyard. It's better than right. the other because it's small. No, not necessarily. That's what I used to say. I choose the small winemakers, not because they're better than the big ones. Because with a small winemaker, if I don't like it, I know who I can. I have to blame. So, <laughs> so I have more control on who is making it. Bigger is that is the production, and less you have control of it. Less you are listening and feeling sentiment, the the cycle of production, which is the problem nowadays. You get lost in where is this coming from. You see, you read organic, but that thing is not organic. They tell you that this. Water is coming from Fiji, and and they see these beautiful uh, you know, commercials, and then it's not true. I mean, it's difficult to define truth in general, but at least you are a bit more aware about it. This is actually a approach. It regards wine, it regards food, it regards everything. I, listen, I think there's a lot of thought put towards that. I mean, you know, who you're bringing in, what they're doing, you know, is important. I don't think restaurants spend the time thinking about it. And to your point, I do hope it influence. You want people to copy. I hope people realize this is the best way to do it, you know, and also work with artisanal producers um, and everything. Um, I don't so think we should graze over how hard it is to do that work as well, too. I mean, it is a life dedication that Alessandro Pepe has, that Alessandro Rochiole has to really diversify themselves and really go out there and find the best. And as a person who likes to say that I would not compromise on quality, like, of course I do. I'm a New Yorker. I want things fast. I want things easy. I want things available. I want them 10 minutes ago. You know, it's very easy for you to go to a big conglomerate and buy absolutely everything and pay one vendor. Right. And so to do that extra legwork, it's, it's not going to take you double the time, but it's going to take you more time. time. And it does yield a better return in the end, but it's a lot of work. And I don't think everybody can do that, but I do think taking a little piece of that where you can um, does make for a better pro a better product. So uh, wait, so the, and I'm not saying that the we're end, not going to change the end the world user is the no, no no no. Wait 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 the end wait wait wait, wait wait wait. Can I say one thing about it? Uh, when we talk about work, what about, about how heavy something? I don't want to do it because the fourth is more. When you put art and aesthetics in your job, there is no more for it. I stopped working four or five years ago, and I work like 16 hours a day. You also sleep two hours a night. No, but <laughs> You're yeah. superhuman. I, I stopped working. I don't work. Because to me, it's a pleasure. So it's, uh, I cannot see it differently. So, And I see a lot of winemakers that they work really hard, and I and I actually see a lot of people that work for multinational company. They pollute the world. They're not happy. I can perceive it that most of these people it's are not happy. You know world, what I'm saying? It's, uh, it's also it's a different I, I, lifestyle. It's, uh, I wouldn't say it's a rare thing, 
I, it's not the most common thing, what you found, you know, such a love Happy and passion. Happy to teach that, people to do it. Well, like, I think, <laughs> would we agree that it's sort of uh, magnetic and catching being around him? Oh, I mean, of course. I mean, it's a wonderful thing to be around somebody who's passionate and dedicated and, and is authentic. Um, I... I think it's hard, you know, people would always say to me, like with airs, right? Like, how do you do what you do at airs and, and lower the cost of the champagne so that, you know, the price point is done and the experience is X. And the only reason why I can do that is because Tokyo Record Bar exists underneath it and that helps support the model, right? Like everybody can't do the thing necessarily if they're not set up to do it. I don't have the type of energy that Alessandro has. I'm a woman from New York City who's like, you know, lived a completely different life. And we I come from a capitalist background. I come from a socialist background. Like our worlds and our cultures and all these things and our experiences lead us to be able to do and live the lives that we do. But I think if you can take a piece away from somebody like Alessandro who really truly lives his life and his work and everything that he believes so authentically, then you can be able to change some of that mon mundaneness right. in your life or that thing that isn't feeling so great. You can change those things. Right. Um, and I would say that I thought that getting back to working in a restaurant was going to be not what I wanted to do, right? I, you joked with me, you've been traveling a lot last year, you know, basically completely took off and traveled the world. And I think maybe I was more depressed last year <laughs> than I am now working in a restaurant right. again. I'm not but surprised. You, but you know, you, you need to have those experiences yeah. to kind of hone in on what it is that you want to do and how you want to do it and what really does make you happy and bring you joy. And if you are lucky enough to do the work that you love, then of course the work doesn't feel like work. But sometimes your life, I don't want my life to be work all the time and I don't want my life to be play all the time. I want some semblance of balance. And I think we have such a nice thing going here right now because it does feel like we have a balance between our work being pleasurable and us also seeing that we have an amazing group of people here who all are enjoying that work and giving each other the freedom and flexibility to do other things in their life as well too. I, I think it's amazing and not everything is open yet but when everything blows open that's really going to show. Um, I got to get you guys out of here soon, but I want to do a few things before we go. You started talking about it, but be a little more specific and firm. The wine events, there are things you're doing on the calendar. You know, t tell me the wine things that you're already doing and some of the things, you know, that either you've done at Remes in Rome that you're bringing here. Um, you talked about you yeah, had a private wine, wine event so you could come um, on Saturdays and Sundays. So wine classes. Mm -hmm. They're led by Alessandro. And how do you find out about that? And how you can okay. book them. Okay. There's a ticket. Do you guys have a website yet? We do. It's rocioliNYC.com. Is that wine stuff on it? There will be a calendar okay. on there. Um, you can also join the wine club which is like the best deal in town. So I, I, <laughs> I could sell the wine club easily. 
<laughs> you know, we just talked about this whole approach and understanding of wine. These are wines that you're curating from the club that we've been talking about for almost so, the last hour. True. What I what I loved about the Sheldrake book about mushroom that you understand that a mushroom is a multi-identity uh, living being. It's like a it, it it it's not located in one specific thing. So if you if you start to have a mushroom approach to things, it's not about what is my core business? Is that a restaurant? Is that the wine club? Is that Rome? Is that the tomato sauce? I know this is actually the connection in, of all these things together that makes up the business that we're building. And, you know, she was saying we come from a social Sounds like what would a mushroom uh, do? <laughs> I right? think your spirit is a mushroom. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not talking about uh, psychedelic mushrooms, but maybe, maybe yes. <laughs> maybe <laughs> I am, but anyway. So the concept is that we don't have to think. And this is something I'm, I'm fighting a lot, especially with my colleagues and employees, is about... We need to start to think on a multi-layers of concept because that's, first of all, how nature and, and life is. That's how you get pleasure from things. Sure. Okay, for example, dividing also the polarity of things, dividing the life in my free time and my busy time. Uh, free time to do what? You know, like, you know, like, you know, my, to free time to, well, you work, so you do something you don't like in order to do something you like, but then you do it 80% of the time. No, that's not work. Why don't you do a job that you like so that the free time is changing, but then you don't know what to do in the free time. It's complex. And so somehow working with something technically is a pleasure, which is wine. Sometimes they tell you, you know, oh, you do the best job in the world, you know, and I used to do this joke, you know, yeah, sometimes I feel like someone that loved chocolate then started to work for Willy Wonka. I mean, it could be frustrating sometimes. <laughs> not having pleasure as a concept. But beside that, if we start to understand that we work on a multi-layer, things will be easier. It can be more viral. So we can actually teach other people and show other people. Think about the, the group of bio producers in Champagne, you know, how Celos and Marguerite and Laval, in little group created such a big. I wouldn't oh say God. that we're doing the same. But in Sardinia, I think, yes. I didn't mention Dario Capelloni, which is a wine journalist. He's one of the last wine scouts that still exists. What's his name? Dario Capelloni. He's like Capelloni? My, my kind of a big brother in a way, like, and with Maurizio, which is my mentor. But the way he somehow, there is a little village called Mamoyada in Sardinia, and now everyone is talking about Mamoyada. Because of him? Because of him, also because of me, and because yeah, of yeah, them. Yeah, of yeah. Because of them, of course, but for sure. Yeah, in real. And, and now he, we are actually doing the same thing in Neonelli, and, you know, this is interesting, the way how, somehow, and people instead of, Mamoyada is one of the few places where people are not leaving the village. They're staying there, which is kind of unique. All the other places they are doing. Why am I speaking about all this? You were talking about the, the wine club. We're doing here. I know the well, wine the club wine. is the concept. It's wine event, the wine club, in the sense that then now if, wine club is about twenty-four bottles shipped twice a year. No, but it's more about. Is it shipped? One case of 12, and, one and time then, of the year, and, and then another toward, one. Okay. okay, we're actually shipping part of it. 30% from next year will be 60% with a sailboat. Okay. So it, we, have, we have been the first one shipping wine in a sailboat after 145 years uh, oh, <laughs> over cool. the ocean. Uh, it's an incredible project called Grande Sel. And uh, and uh, and so, although, so I know it looks like it's a fancy thing to do, but it's actually working. Up, yeah. uh, it takes only uh, 20 days. It takes less than actually the normal boat because uh, it does, it's not stuck on the custom for 20 days. Oh, really? Because the sailboat is faster and also it's, it actually is also cooler because it goes on the north side. So this thing is about if you go on Wine club, it means where we're supposed to taste the wine. We're not yet. We're not yet, but for example, that's why you when you will hear the story of this wine, you will understand how the wine club and Rosholi, New York City, and Rimessa 
is potentially there to create a different approach to the wine world. I'm ready to explain it whenever you want. All right. So that's the wine club, the uh, wine events. You basically pick the wines. I yeah, you choose the three or four wines theme, and pair them with some or snacks region and... or whatever. We, yeah. at Nishnisha Trimesa, I don't think we did everything like we did in the last, in the last 10 years, I think I did tasting. So we have a list of ideas of things focusing. My, usually what I teach in my wine courses is do not consider uh, a wine course as a school that you have to get a degree. Right. A wine course is about education. It's, it's not even education It is experiential. You are enriching your flavor encyclopedia. Every bottle is a little story and is a sip of memory that will stick in your palate. The more you get it, more your life will be pleasant. The more story you have to tell to your friends. That's and the to... way to do it. Um, all right. We're going to end there. We're going to do the wine list quickly, and then we're going to taste that wine and do the story. Here's the wine list. I have five questions I've asked all my guests on all my shows, over 300 shows, the same five questions to everyone. We post them on social media. Don't dwell on the answers. Give me a couple of answers. If you can't get anywhere, I'll press you a little. All right. Here's the first question. I'll start with you. Same question to each of you. What are you drinking now? What's in your fridge? What's on the table? Are you drinking stuff because the opening of the restaurant? Are you drinking seasonal stuff? Give me a couple things you're drinking now. Tequila, tequila, and tequila. Okay. Is that a summary <laughs> thing? Nope. Okay. And are you drinking, wait, are you drinking sipping tequilas? Are you drinking sipping tequilas? No, I mean, look, I've been drinking a lot of wine for a long like time. And Give me one or two tequilas at a Wine core. makes me tired these tequila days. Tequila doesn't? And tequila does Give me not. one or two and tequilas you like. I'm way more fun like. on a little tequila. I'm um, sure. <laughs> Fortaleza has always Fortaleza's been solid. my stronghold. And um, I don't know. I mean, I make a lot. Of, I like making cocktails. I, that's With my tequila? foundational background is actually cocktail culture. Do you culture. do any spicy stuff? I love spicy okay. stuff. Yeah. My <laughs> wife infuses also, habaneros mm. in, um, uh, what's that liqueur in the long bottle? It'll come to me. <laughs> what What are you drinking now? Mm-hmm. I would assume. I can tell you that the last time I had tequila, I was 18 years old. Me too. And I, <laughs> me too. <laughs> me too. And I threw it up. No, I cannot even smell, smell it. I cannot yes, even smell Same exact thing. Same exact thing. All right. What are you, so what are you drinking now? Outside of, you know. Outside the vino, vermouth and bitter. Mm. Vermouth and bitter is like I'm going crazy with so natural wait, vermouth and bitter. Just Ver- vermouth with bitters or do you no, cut vermouth, it No, bitters and amaro. These oh, are, and amaro. And okay. amaros. And I cannot, I'm sorry, I'm, seems I'm showing off, but we're actually importing our own amaros and vermouth and bitter and we're probably soon crossing finger we're going to buy a company. Rocioli brand? Or it's, it's, your, it's actually, this, your can brand? I say this is mine? I mean, I love okay. Rocioli, but this is not What's it called? <laughs> it's called Visconti and they, yeah, they yes. make the best bitter and amaro ever. The vermouth regola is beautiful and he wants to leave the place. He's going to stay for, with us for the next two, three years, but we're going to buy the company so we're going to post potentially make on any winery we work with, we can make our local vermouth and vermouth I get a new bitter. project. Okay. There you go. <laughs> All right. Second question. Um, this is the goofiest question yeah. on the list, but it was there from the beginning. Do you have a favorite wine and food pairing? Do you look at a food and a wine that you don't eat it often, you know, maybe a few times, but that is just the perfect ooh-ah match? 
Etna rosso and tuna fish. What kind of tuna? Like added? Uh, I like to play with a different consistency of tuna fish towards one specific bottle of wine. So you can go with raw tuna slightly marinated, you can go with buzzonaglia, then you can go with the ventresca, the belly parta, or the toro, and then you go with the fillet and the red tuna fish. I know tuna fish is not really environmental well, friendly. I but... fish for tuna here in New York. Okay. You know, we eat it raw, okay. we cook it. And I don't go mad Why for tuna fish. Why is the Etna rosa... I don't, know, go those I don't go mad for tuna fish. That's and I Sicilian, really right? Go, yeah, Sicilian. Rosa, why, why does that work? Uh, technically, is, is, every wine school will tell you it's not a good pairing because they're both metallic. But meta that's the beauty they're both, of... I, they're, 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 they're both metallic and irony. Uh, iron, irony, sorry. Iron, uh, like metallic. Yeah. Uh, technically, you don't mesh and mesh iron with iron. Uh, Sometimes but, game meets game. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> of course. But in that specific case, you have this crossing border of a wine that is mountain and sea because Sicily is all about right. mountain and sea. You have a fish that has the consistency of the meat and on the same time makes you play with these two ideas. And if you finish with a bit of a caponata to sweeten up the palate, I think that the pairing we had yesterday, to me, not a lot of people maybe understand it, that buzzanaglia needs to stay in olive oil for another couple of months, mm. but uh, uh, was a bit too strong in my opinion. Uh, we gave buzzanaglia, I think, for the first time in U.S. Because yeah, <laughs> uh, buzzanaglia, usually, they throw it away. It's like the spine of the tuna full of blood. And uh, in Italy, it used to be the, the poor Not thing. the collar, the spine. The, 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 the spine, you know, yeah. the column, the column. God. Yeah, whatever. No, sorry. The, the, yeah, the, yeah, 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 whatever. God, they're... Uh, like on animals, tail to nose, they're eating everything. Yeah, on it's fish like the now. it's like the belly, you know, when you do yeah. like the the payata in Rome, like as and it used to be a poor thing. Now it's actually more expensive than the fish. All right, top that. I mean, mine's never going to change. I'm going to give you the same. I, I love the time. fact that it is what it it's is. Pizza and champagne. Pizza yeah, you're right. This is my life. I it's forgot about it's that. It's my, my number one <laughs> two rider die. Um, Lambrusco mortadella, another one that I love. That's a good oh, one. <laughs> Lambrusco is underrated. In my you are we going to do a lot of job with Lambrusco. Right. Um, <laughs> I, I don't like, know. Hush, you do. It's, this has always been on the list, and it's always provided great answers. I don't know if you're going to be comfortable answering it. Favorite wine restaurant and our wine bar. Like, who in New York do you see does it well? Oh, well, I wasn't going to answer in New York. But, Anywhere. Um, sure. Anywhere. I mean, I've got a, I've definitely got a ton that Give I love. Give me a couple. Pick um, your favorite city place. Well, I just was recently in Amsterdam and Copenhagen to of the most incredible wine places I've ever been. I'm not going to say that the prices are cheap, but the access that they have, my goodness. Copenhagen apparently gets the same allocation as all of England. So literally every single wine in the world, Is they that because of Rene Rizepi or it preceded <laughs> no, that? No, it's like somebody created the allocated numbers and okay. they like gave an entire country to one small place. Okay. So the wine that I got to drink there, again, not cheap, but incredible. Um, I will say that Ventre in Paris, I just, his wine collection, Marco's wine collection I is I love unreal. Marco. Marco's been on the show. And the food has gotten... one of the worst, no, I should not say that. But... Well, that's okay. That's okay <laughs> that you had that. I've had the but exact everyone, opposite. But everyone told me Ventre is great. I have I to go back. I think it's one of the most special places. And if you get to visit his cellar, it's yeah. even next level. Um you know, the place that kind of changed my life for wine was when uh, Vanya was at Joe Beef and no wine list, when just David was there. her and her yeah. explaining and, and selling. And I was such a novice when I went there, but the experience of drinking wine there is just next level. She's still a star up in oh, Montreal. Yeah. 
yeah. All right, so those are good, and I mentioned I will post them so people listening um, on our social media. Can you think of any place? Yeah, of course. I can think of a lot of places. Uh, talking about New York, which is... Anywhere. Uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll give you I would love your take on New York, though. I, oh, I will give you a couple of... Uh, I will give you a couple of places. Talking about New York, even if I still a lot of places that I have to visit, I had an possibly one of the best wine nights in, in, in New York with the four sourcemen. Oh, yeah. Uh, nice. But no, but also part. because that night I started to, I like to offer, I'm kind of, a, you know, I, and I opened bottle, we, we were in two, and so I started, and I offered to the entire bar, and then we started, to, and he he was, he made us taste, a, taste a, a Texas wine. <laughs> it was actually oh quite interesting, yeah. And uh, so I love it. In terms of Italy, and this I need to, uh, I need to thank my friend Gaetano. Gaetano is incredible in finding places that are completely lost in the middle of nowhere. One is called the Locanda Mariella. Uh, I haven't been there for the last 10 years, but when I was there, that was a place that was truly super traditional um, Where is from it? near Parma. Uh, so partner. we're talking about Emilia Romagna. They make the most fagioli cotiche. Cotica is the skin of the pork with beans. It's the most poor <laughs> type of food. Pleasant and food. so on, a pleasant for peasant food. And they have, that we had that night, Chateau Lafitte 90 for $150. Clos Minile 90 for like $300. My they were, goodness. I don't know. And we had this incredible wine list with the most poor food ever. So Lafitte and Beans was the best pairing mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. And they, they are a strange couple. They, they run that place. It's in the middle of nowhere. Those in the middle good of nowhere. Ones. That's a good one. Um, all right. Like I said, I'm going to post those. All right. Fourth question. The question originally was posed to my guest as, what is your favorite all-time wine? What is your favorite all-time wine? Don't answer that. My intention was sort of like, what's the rarest, most expensive wine you ever drank? I don't give a crap about that. The question has morphed into what is that wine that changed the way you think about wine? That was a gateway wine. That was influential. That's important. Um, if there's more than one, fine. But w- what's what's that wine? And and you know it's funny how people answered. It was a crappy champagne when they got engaged in the first Bordeaux. So where do you go with that? Well, the wine that changed my life was probably um, Ravenswood. Really? My parents were in the Newcomers Club, and when I was a kid, they would have like wine and cheese parties, and that was the extent of the wine that but they were drinking. But that's not the crappiest supermarket wine. It's not supermarket at wine at all. At the time, it was kind of like... Fancy? Fancy. It was not $10, which no, no, some no. of their other wines were. Um, and Did- I would say that as a kid, I used to always say to my parents, like, are you going to have a bottle of Ravenswood at your party? You know, like I gave a shit that they were going to have something that I thought and was And you good. recognized when you tasted I, it? There was, no, oh, of course okay. not. But like, it was the allure But of that it. was like, that's class, you know? Um, that's and, so funny. And so like, to me, that will always be kind of like my, my first ex- memory, my visceral memory with wine. Um, but the wines that like, actually changed my life and changed my career were when I was working for Chef Granakets and I was working at the office and we had a very curated little wine list and and Chef Ackets would always drink Krug and I remember you know there was a little bit left in the bottle at the end of the night and I got to taste it and um, I was just like I don't get it like why why is this the best why is this so expensive why is this what he drinks right 
And I had not tasted a lot of champagne at that time. So for me, it was kind of like when you ask someone to start explaining wine when they have no vocabulary for it, I was just like, this kind of just tastes like, you know, flat acid, right? And now here I am 15 plus years later, and I can tell you absolutely everything about Krug. And I can tell you that from the nattiest wine lover to the most aficionado, if you open a bottle of Krug, everybody's wine glass goes up and everybody wants that wine. And it's generally pretty delicious. And it's not like, you know, it's not the most artisan produced wine, but it's also been able to sustain uh, it's a house. It, it's wine. it's been able to sustain an allure for so long that is only getting better. Um, that I would say that that wine was the first time that I tasted something and I didn't understand it, and it took time for me to get there. But it opened up and it opened your, your up vision my, of. Well, now I need to start tasting more champagne because if this is the quote unquote best, wow, you know nice. what. And, um, and we've drank some bottles of Krug together, and they've definitely brought us together. So I picked the fanciest to the not fanciest. <laughs> what, 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 can you okay. think of a wine? We, I can think of a lot of them. I can mention at least a, a couple that really changed my life. I'm against the concept of finding winner and loser in wine, uh, and in art in general. But it happens that we have some Madeleine. And what is incredible about uh, wine that is stronger than Madeleine. I am, I've always been a fan of decadentism, so Joyce, Proust, Dostoevsky, Thomas Mann, that aura that at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, you know, they were saying, monsters are coming, master culture is coming, you know, we are here, the Verdurin uh, culture, you know, like uh, against the, so the idea that there was an aesthetical approach to things and love for beauty and class also <laughs> in a way we are all snobbing in a, in a way or another so there are moments that are to me one is specific when i was invited to the service party at castello de rampolla and i remember we arrived at with a horrible car and everything and we were <laughs> drinking the worst wine in the world there was like the leftover of the leftover of the chianti because that's what the wine house they had from rampolla from yeah, because Rampola used to invite right. all the village right, right, right. To, to to her winery, you know, La Principessa di Napoli. And so she was having this, and I remember like, you know, you know, with my friends throwing up, like, you know, one of those like <laughs> teenagers, we don't know how to control ourselves. Right, right. So I was completely done. I'm, like, I'm not gonna drink wine for the rest of my life. You know, you know, one of those things. I was looking for the restroom and I got lost in the castle, you know, the, the, the middle-aged castle of Rampola. And uh, and I remember like it was like uh, like Harry Potter situation, <laughs> like like something in between Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings with this big, huge painting, like the, we're talking about the relatives of Piccolomini family, Borgia, right. all the popes and king of Italy. <laughs> and and at a certain point. I got lost and then I entered in the room there was this fireplace that was bigger than my apartment and there was these two people actually smelling this wine in a glass like this and and actually oh no I'm sorry looking for the restroom and the guy called me no no come in uh, guy, I was 18 years old we would like you to taste the wine that we just opened we're having a discussion we're thinking about a discussion about if it is better Sangiovese or Cabernet we don't know it and we created this new wine and I tried it and I like Boom! Was this like explosion in my palate? Maybe because of this incredible event. But I was reading Proust at that time, 
And that guy was Giacomo Takis. He is the Giacomo Takis, the Michel Rolano viral. He's the creator of Sassicai. I, dis- right. I discovered it like 10 years later. Super Tuscans. He blended <laughs> you know, but it, and he, in a fair and, grape. And the wine was a San Marco 86. So it's actually the first vintage of San Marco. Wow. And so when, whenever I try that wine, I have a shiver in, in my mind. And the other one is, of course, Krug in any version, but mainly is a Clodo Mini 85. And I remember opening at my birthday a few years ago and boom. New, two for two on crew. <laughs> um, We're fans. That's, that's a heck of a story. Um, all right, last question. The question is, recommend to me best wine around 15, 20, 22 bucks, a red and a white. Hold on. I do that because I have kids in their mid-late 20s. One of them's 30. They can't afford to spend 40, 50 bucks a bottle, but they're beyond buying crappy supermarket wine for 11, 12. So the question, you could stay with the price or not. What, what are the best value wines? Like, where are we getting the best value on the lower end of the price? Range? Know, to me, there is a big misunderstanding in terms of what you mean when you connect the quality and quantity. This is a, a liter, no, it's 0.75 liter of poison. Can we say that? <laughs> it is alcohol. Do, do you think we can share this bottle in eight people? I think yes. It's a medium little glass of wine. Oh, it's an incredible. Why don't you pour that out now? Pour it out. I mean, no, this is here. But wait, Look at are this. you telling my me my question is this is silly a and it's pleasure. hard to answer to recommend you know value wines? No, no, I'm doing. It. I'm okay. finishing the question. I'm saying first of all, all right, let's figure out. Let's figure out that with this experience, if you drink slowly. And that's what I mean. I'm 51 and drink less and less because I'm getting old. Me too. Drink it slowly. You don't need more than this wine to share with a group of friends. <coughs> and this is $3 of wine, not even $2 of wine. You know why? Can I give you a little story? I have my best friends. They cannot spend more than $4 in a bottle of wine. They freak out. Four for the whole bottle? Yeah, for the four. That's you, Italy, okay? They freak out. And, they, and I'm the snobbish guy. I remember... We were going out for like drinks and we went to buy a bottle of champagne. It was $50. We were seven people. So we spent like $7. What? $50? A bottle of champagne? <laughs> this is coming. It was actually, I think it was a Pierre Peter. Okay. So it was actually a good buy. It was Chatillon Pierre Peter, $50. So one was not so expensive as now it is. Then we went to a pub. We had seven Guinness, $8 each. Nobody complained. It's so funny. Why? That is such Tell a great. Me, I love Guinness. Beer, you don't even pay for the glass because, you know, it's draft beer. Why they didn't complain? So give me this story about Wally Perot. Beside that, People all the concept of wine prices, all the wine cost to the producer between three to seven, eight dollars. That's what they cost to the producer. So if you go directly to the producer, that's what the wine should cost. You pay a bit more for a Barolo, but that's it. Or a Brunello, but that's it. Wine should all cost below $40, $50, in my opinion. But technically, between $25 and $30, you buy everything. Then you have to think about shipment, taxes, FDA, and all the stuff you have to pay in the U.S., which is affecting between 60 to 70% of the price of the wine, originally speaking. But, uh, yeah, that to, to me, everyone we have actually around that price now here. Right. All the wine club wines are a bit more expensive, but technically on that range of price. Right. All the good ones are affordable. I'm not even going to ask you the question because I think 
unless you. I think it's easier to talk region than it is to talk individual bottles. Mm. I mean, yeah, just the economics of. If you listen to my show, I always say recommend like. I still think Muscadet is not a bad value if you grab sure. it. Sure, I think know, we regionally. would both say that Sicily and everything in the surrounding area of Sicily is an interesting, incredible value. I'm not saying all the wines. Right. I'm just saying in general, a lot that's of the a things region that I'm drinking that are super exciting that they're putting in front of me. Um, Sicilian wines are really jazzy. Uh, and Sardinia. Sardinia and, is doing know, a lot, and they will cost special. between eight to fifteen dollars. Making good wines. Yeah. Campania is a bit struggling. I have to say, Campania, comparing to the amount of producer they have, it's difficult to find. There's a beautiful quote from uh, Luigi Tece. The la- we do these documentaries on wine. And, and uh, the last quote of Luigi Tece, you know, and I was asking, why I cannot find quality Taurasi? You know, I know we are 200 producers, and you only have like five, six quality winemakers. And he said, well, what do you think? I cannot translate it with a strong Naples accent. Do you think that in an 18th century, everyone was Voltaire? <laughs> so the quality is a limited thing. <laughs> That's funny. All right. So we're going to finish the show talking this about this so wine. Nice huh? This is drinking better today than it was last yeah. night. Okay. So Alessandra, every week uh, we do the podcast, we take a different, we taste a different wine. You know, I generally have winemaker sommeliers, so it's fun for them to pick. Mm -hmm. I asked you guys to pull a wine out that Mm -hmm. sort of represents your thinking, the restaurant, the program, and all that. I think philosophically, we have a good idea of, you know, how you approach this and what's going on here. So tell me what we're drinking. Okay. We are in Etna, Etna? which is a volcano, okay, that everyone is talking about, right? Everyone knows about Etna nowadays, 15 years ago. Not even in Italy. We knew that Etna was a volcano. Nobody knew that they were making wine there. 20 years ago, before Benanti arrived, but actually who really changed the rules of Etna are Marc de Grazia, Franchetti, and Cornelissen, okay? Like them, blame them, do whatever you want. But if we know Etna now, it's mainly because of these three people. None of them is from Etna. None of them is Sicilian. One is from Belgium, one is from Tuscany, the other one is from South America, more or less. Two of them are important. One is coming from a rich family, unfortunately, Franchetti, which was a beautiful person. We did the last tasting with him at Rimessa a couple of months before he was passing away. It was possibly one of the most moving uh, experiences. He knew that he was not, not a lot of life left. But oh, he also described how and you know, somehow he promoted this area. Now, can I tell you that when I taste Etna wines, I get really confused over what is Etna? In the sense that I have these incredible vineyards that have 80 years old, 100 years old, the Prefiloxera vineyard, 1,000 meters, 900 meters, and then you have all the Contrada. But then I say, yeah, I don't really get it. And then when you go through it, it's difficult to find people that are from Etna, they make Etna wines. So when I found the Giuseppe and Valeria, and they're 35 years old, 36 years old, both of them, he had inherited the vineyard from the grandfather. He's probably one of the few with Calcagno that is technically from Paso Pisciaro, Giuseppe and Valeria. And, uh, and we all talk about terroir, right? Let's make it even more easy. Uh, when we come to a winery, they tell you, oh, it's all this composition of the soil and that. And then you right. taste the wine, you just taste jam, cherry, and oak. Yeah, why, right. why, why you show me the soil if the wine is just <laughs> shitty? <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, really. And there is no relation with what you taste and what you get in the soil. Okay, believe it or not, put the nose inside the glass. Isn't it? I oh, know. Like it or not, because this is a kind of a bit of slightly funky wine, it's a funky wine, but is this lava flow? Isn't it the most <laughs> volcanic wines you ever had? I mean, well, it, there's something 
smoky. I'm terrible at descriptors. Yeah. Well, yeah, smoky and yeah. the nose and the palate. So a couple <clears throat> things. Say the producer slowly for me. Shirto. S-C-I-R-T-O. Shirto. Shirto. And this bottling is called what? Is there a... A Culonna. Okay. They also make another wine that is called uh, Don Pippino. Uh, and Don Pippino, you might remember there is another producer that make a wine called Don Pippino. And, and there is a video where he said, he stole my uncle <laughs> because Don Pippino. So, but, but this is another story. The grape? It's called, uh, I have no clue, but it's for sure Nellero Mascalese and Nerello Cappuccio. But like any old vineyard that has not been regrafted and re-established blended they is blended another maybe seven eight is it bit, is probably it a bit of bit of a caricant. blended I yeah mean, they, they just, just harvest all of it some of them they can recognize it there are at least another 15 different bio local biotypes that are not descriptive all right so let's do a quick evaluation and okay. then we got to wrap up all right yeah. so color it's pretty it's a, you know deepish purple um i would say it's garnet Garnet, garnet, garnet edges a, in the middle. It's dark. A dustiness yeah. to it. All right, so that's Last color. Time I did something like this was give me years the ago, <laughs> Ariel, <laughs> give me the nose descriptors. Oh, the nose. Um, to me, here you have cloves. You have a lot of you have cloves? delicate spices. You have a bit of it a is ma- spicy garrigue, macchia mediterranea, a bit of a black pepper. I don't like describing wines in general, but then you have this smoky. Ashes, volcanic, lava flow, m- metal. When people doesn't know, when people don't know what to, what does it mean minerality. Usually, I give wine like this. I mean, this is like the concept of a mineral and wine. Not a lot of fruit. There is a bit of a cherry, like a sour cherry yeah. thing, but it's. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's. I, we gen- tasted this wine last night, and it was much leaner and meaner. And today, yeah. the it's fruit is up. much more explosive. There's a bitterness to this wine that I like. Mm-mm. Like almost like a bitter almond or something. You, it's pleasant. a sweet business. Like you use bitter and it's kind of an off-putting description, mm-hmm. but it works well in this wine. All right. The mouthfeel is sort of a medium, medium plus. It's not a thin wine. It's not, you know, mm-hmm. unctuous. It's got to a me, nice... it stays on those edges where I don't care anymore. Yeah. What, what does it mean, the length of the wine? Because it's so memorable how, I, especially I link it with the place. And also, uh, I didn't finish the story that last year... This is coming from a vineyard that is was on sale, uh, and so the guy said, "Tomorrow I cannot give you next year. I cannot give you this wine anymore because my uncle is selling the vineyard." And so I said, "Okay, I'll buy it so that you can give it to me." And this actually created like now we have investors that want to buy vineyards in order to save. Yeah. So you you've kept this vineyard going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now yeah, there is a little house we're restoring it, Jeez, and it's so, uh, and so. And now we're gonna do the same thing in Sardinia, another one in Cinque Terre. And it's creating this thing that we are helping winemakers to continue to stay there and produce it in a certain way. So that's why I choose it, this wine, as an iconic wine of our wine club. And that is a great story. in New York City. That and is a great story. Um, is this available, Ariel? I know we can come here and get it. Are there any, like, decent wine shops that you and I know about no, that have? No, 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 no. This is all. No, 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 Okay, so if you want this wine, another <laughs> this good reason to come here. through them. Yeah. Uh, you can uh, buy it. So the palette we talked about, there's not a ton of fruit, but there's a little cherry. There's definitely that volcanic. It's unique. It's, yeah, it's, it is unique. It's, you would never miss this wine with anything else. This is what I like. <laughs> we talk about terroir, but we don't know what is terroir. I like Burgundy. Because it doesn't taste like Oregon. I love this. Not that I don't like Oregon. All right. but it's... The last question on this wine is, again, a silly question. What do you guys see as a great pairing food-wise for this or anything? Well, you did. You 
What do you, you say? Yesterday we did yesterday. this tuna fish. I was talking before. So we did what you tuna. said before. Yeah. Okay. So the thing. different kinds of tunas. I, I think that would go also with um, duck. This one here, something bit or a pigeon could be also nice thing. Mm. Like um, beef that it, beef meat that is not as uh, maybe as fat as uh, right uh, or right. some little game not too strong. You could um, see something salty, some salty cheese. Yes. So nothing too, nothing what too about fresh. charcuterie? You know, yeah, I mean, a plate of prosciutto. Oh, Montenegro, even though in that case. So, a charcuterie platter with well thought out stuff would be a great. Salame from Montenegro. Sure. I mean, I could see a little Hamon Iberico. Yeah. Iberico, the problem of Iberico that they they don't really match with tannic wines. This is not a strongly tannic wine, but Etna tends to have tannins. So, tannins. Uh, because it makes your palate a bit too dry at the end. Because there is this concept of Iberico tend to dry. It's tannic, but Iberico as a, as a, as a... The ham is so tannic? Yeah, yeah it's a bit... So it's tannic against tannic? In a way, yes. It's sweet in the center, but that you right. can... I, I you never knew that. I would That's never... We tried... And barolo. prosciutto is not like that? No. As much as Iberico? is perfect with Barolo, for example. It's horrible with... with uh, Barolo is horrible with uh, with Patanegra. Well, well, it's, it's very tannic. Yeah. All right, so that's the. Uh, that was the one. Excellent. That you know is what, the. Uh, not that I want to keep this going. I'm so them. sorry, but like a wine like this, and you might be like, "You're dumb," because that's how they make this. But I feel like this is the type of wine that you would taste, and it would go through something like carbonic maceration if this was made by somebody else, and you would lose all of the texture, and you would mm. lose the mid palate of this wine. And this wine is so much itself, and and so full from start to finish. There's there's fruit, there's acid, there's a through line. It is not ruined by a style of winemaking. This it is, just is. You just said something that is the end of part of the documentary that I did with them. You, we, should, we never talk about this issue, about this dichotomy between conventional and natural wines. And what is interesting, that what I noticed, that I like winemakers that are natural without knowing it. It means they, they, they we discover that we were making natural wines. While there are a lot of neo-rurals, they go back, they, they put a fancy label with, you know, a drawing from their child and, and they let it go. And it's, uh, so that's a bit the tricky thing, you know, sometimes, you know, the funky wine, funkiness of the wine that covers a bit the, the lack of tradition, the lack of knowledge. But this is a wine with zero. I, I agree with This that. is zero sulfates here. Eh? Is no it? filtration, decantation, wow. totally. Um, all right, we got to wrap up. Yeah. Was that seven, um, seven hours? How would... <laughs> no, I, I, I knew we would go this long. and I knew... Sorry to the listeners. <laughs> Not sorry at all. Believe me, they'll be very engaged by this. And I knew we would go this long, and I knew there would be no real gap. I mean, it, this is there's a ton of interesting stuff here. I didn't want to tell you up front that it would go this long because I know how valuable your time is. But I also know with guys like you, once I get you started, you'll stay with it. So let me do a quick wrap up and I want to get some info from you for our listeners. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening or event, hit me up at Sam at the grapenation.com. That's Sam at the grapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your pods. The reason we ask you to subscribe is if you're a fan of the show, you subscribe and the podcast shows up. There's Ariel right next to you in bed on a Wednesday night. <laughs> Not IRL. Uh, um, leave a review if you like the podcast. Follow us on Instagram at Ruby. 
on Twitter at Ben Ruby. I know it's confusing, but you can always reach us with the hashtag The Grape Nation to find us on both. We're on Facebook at The Grape Nation. As I mentioned a few times during the show, we will post Ariel and Alessandro's wine list answers, and I will post our weekly wine sip selection. This is truly a unique, interesting, delicious wine. So I think that will uh, get people intrigued and maybe come here and taste it. Um, So here's the last thing. If people want more information on Roscioli, New York, we mentioned this. Mention it again, Ariel. Yeah, so you can go to the website, which is roscioliNYC.com. R-O-S-C-I-O-L-I, Roscioli. NYC.com. We have our Instagram account, which is roscioliNYC. Okay. Um, you can make reservations via Resi. Um, so you're a Resi. As a disclaimer for upstairs, when we open the end of the summer, it will be walk-in, walk-in. only. Okay. So reservations will always be for the tasting. And, of course, you can buy tickets on Resi for the wine classes and for the Taste of the Legend dinners on Mondays and Tuesdays. So one thing I noticed, one thing I knew and one thing I found out, is you are a prolific social media person. There's, Whoa. There's, there's, there's a lot of content in your life, whether it's working, traveling, your personal life. I mean, you'll stand in your lobby with an outfit and to you, you know, you just, <laughs> that type of stuff. You, on the other hand, I don't think, do you do anything on social media? I don't have any social media pages. What do we do to get this guy going? <laughs> he has one. No, I, mean, I have a YouTube. I have the YouTube. Okay. Restaurant, the YouTube channel, which is not. So he tell basically me, just wants to give myself. you his phone number. So tell me, what's the YouTube thing? What is it and how do we get there? We, uh, Intravino, which is the kind of. Uh, the I-N-T-R-A-V-I-N-O. No, no, Intravino is the kind of the wine spectator oh, of Italy. Okay. They just actually wrote an article a few months ago saying that we are the biggest video library on wine in the world world. We have more than 700 documentaries on wine and uh, we publish our videos every week on Republica. So this is something that you're happening for the last 10 years. This? Yes. Oh, Technically, wow. so you're heavily... every single one we have is linked to with the video of the winemaker. So like me, I've done hundreds of podcasts. You've it's done, exactly. You've done... We have a video production. Made so wait, of... where do I find this? Rosciali, uh, YouTube. And okay. you also Republica okay. website, which okay. is the Italian New York Times. More Did less. you know that? Yeah. Okay, I didn't. <laughs> All right, I want to thank our guests, my friend Ariel Arce, my new friend Alessandro Pepe from Roscioli, New York City. Um, the creativity, the passion, the uniqueness going on here is off the charts. I wish you guys... The best of luck. I don't think you're going to need luck. We'll all take it, though. Um, So continued, you know, happiness, you know, doing this. And uh, we'll uh, check back with you soon. Um, So you've been listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby. We'll see you next time. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.